Matthew chapter 7, if you'd open up your Bibles please there. This morning we are in the last portion of the Sermon on the Mount contained in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We've been studying this particular portion of Scripture for, only one, for over one year now, which is really a, a testimony to the profundity of Jesus' teachings. Some say that the Sermon on the Mount was preached in a very short time, uh, perhaps just a little bit more than the time it takes us to read these three chapters, while there are others who say that it was preached over the course of several days. And what we read here are the highlights of what Jesus had to say, but not necessarily everything that he said. But regardless of which viewpoint you take of that, it's taken us over a year just to get through two of these chapters. And that really just tells us the depth of the importance of what we find in this sermon that Jesus preached. One of the most valuable commentaries that I have on the Sermon on the Mount was written by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he takes over 600 pages to deal uh, with this sermon. It's a life-changing sermon, and that's why we spend so much time dealing with it. I'd also like to point out that for most people who like to ignore the rest of the Bible, and they would prefer that they would pick and choose the verses that they would know from the Sermon on the Mount, I would have to say that they really don't understand it. They look at this as life principles that are to be applied to just about anybody. And if we were to live by these principles, then the Sermon on the Mount would correct all the ills of the world and everything would be fine. And in a sense, that would be true, except that this sermon was not given for just everybody. But this was given to those who have a personal relationship with God as their Father through Jesus Christ. None but believers can actually apply what's written in this sermon. And so it really couldn't cure all the ills of the world unless all people had their hearts purified by faith in Christ. But there are some who like to pull out their verses from the Sermon on the Mount without knowing what they mean. And really, anybody who has not been justified by faith in Christ is condemned every which way from Sunday by reading what's spoken here. Even as a believer, I'm shamed myself by reading what Jesus says because I see how far short that I fall of the grace of God and being what God wants me to be. And so I just thank the Lord that Christ is the one who is my righteousness because without him, I would be condemned by every word that Jesus speaks here. So I, I want to tell you, don't mess with the Sermon on the Mount unless you know Jesus. Well, the opening verses of the seventh chapter are another testament to common misunderstandings of the passages that are in this sermon. So we're going to look at this today, and we're going to try to put Jesus' teachings in the proper perspective. So Matthew chapter 1, verse number 1. Stand with me as we read God's Word, if you would. Matthew 7, verse number 1. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. And we pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts to this text and help us to get some understanding of what you'd have us to know by the words that Jesus spoke. Bless our people today, and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like you to take a look again at verse number 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, if I were to ask you what is the most often quoted verse in the Bible, most of you would probably say John 3.16. I mean, just about everybody knows John 3.16. You may remember the guy that used to sit in the end zone at football games with the rainbow hair. And uh, just about every nationally televised game, you would see him there. And I really don't know how he had connections to get tickets to all of those games. But you would uh, watch a field go or an extra point being kicked. And as that ball went through the uprights, it would begin to sink down into the crowd. And the, and the camera would, would follow the ball all the way down. And there would be that guy with the rainbow hair with a sign that said John 3.16. Now, most of us are familiar with John 3.16. But I'm not so sure that among non-Christians that Matthew 7, verse number 1, is not the most famous verse. And I would have to say that this verse is actually the life verse of every unbeliever. Judge not that you be not judged. And you can count on it when an unbeliever uses that verse that he does not want to be judged. He doesn't know what the verse means and he doesn't want anyone to tell him about his sins. Nobody tell him about his faults. Well, we're going to get to that in in just a moment. And I'm going to speak in two messages about what this verse means. Uh, But before we do, I want us to back up just a little and we're going to get the setting for why Jesus says this. What's the backdrop? I mean, why is it that Jesus made this verse a part of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, Jesus is speaking in Galilee to a group of people that had been laid under a very heavy burden of performance religion. God has put it into the heart of every person to know that there is a God and we are accountable to him. I mean, no matter what evolutionists say and what atheists say and how hard they tried to work against that national or natural revelation, it still remains true that no matter where you go in the world, no matter what people that you're talking about, no matter what period of time, people believe in a God of some sort or another. Now, that's what we call the natural revelation of God. But what we don't receive from natural revelation is who God is personally or even uh, that God actually is a personal God. The true revelation of God can only come from God himself. And that's what God has done through the written word, the Bible, and especially what he has done through the living word who is Jesus Christ come in human flesh. Now, I don't have time today to uh, go into all the history of Israel and God's special revelation that he gave to them as his chosen people. But let's let it suffice to say that God did reveal himself to the nation of Israel. And through them, we were given the Old Testament scriptures. And they are, of course, the nation that brought the Messiah, Jesus Christ, into the world. Now, all the time that, or at the time, I should say, that Jesus came, the truth of scripture had been hijacked by a group of religious leaders that are called the scribes and the Pharisees. And for the most part, they were really the, uh, ran the nation uh, according to religion, and they had perverted God's law, which is the criteria by which God is going to judge us. And so they took what was true and righteous and godly judgment, and they replaced that with their own perverted judgments. 
And so they had given the people grievous religious burdens to bear. And they were teaching people that in order for you to be right with God, you had to meet their standards. And so when Jesus came, he was correcting those misinterpretations of God's law. And everything that you read in the Sermon on the Mount is somehow going to go back to all of those years of the wrong type of teaching that had been given by the scribes and the Pharisees. So the scribes and the Pharisees had set themselves up to be the judge and jury of everything that's righteous. It was their system. It wasn't God's system. And so they were the ones who were uh, critical of everyone else concerning how they lived their lives and, and what was truly righteous. And so they were a condemning people. They were a criticizing people. They were hateful and they were unforgiving. And we see Jesus over and over again correcting their attitude in this sermon. Now, you just take a look back at uh, some of the verses that precede this. Uh, Jesus says in chapter 5, verse number 22, Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Well, these were very angry people. And so Jesus uh, spoke about their anger and reversed their teachings to emphasize making friends with our adversaries. They were lying people. And so Jesus tells them in verse number 36 to let their communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. He means stop lying and always speak the truth. They loved revenge. And so their favorite verses in the Old Testament were ones like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus replaced that with instructions about forbearance. And he said, if anyone strikes you on one cheek, then turn to him the other also. They were hateful people. And so Jesus taught them in verse 44 that they were to love their enemies and those that hated them. They were hypocritical in their giving and hypocritical in their prayers. They were hypocritical in their pretenses of devotion to God. And Jesus addresses that in the beginning of chapter 6. They were unforgiving people. And so in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gave instructions about repentance and forgiveness of others. And on and on it goes all the way throughout the sermon. So we come to Matthew 7, verse number 1, and Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. And he said that the same judgment that you use on others is what you will be judged by. The same criticisms that you make of others, uh, you had better be sure that you're not guilty of doing the same things that you accuse others of doing because God is going to hold you accountable in exactly the same way. And then later, Jesus said in the 23rd chapter, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. So here you have no correct judgment. You have no mercy. There is no faith. And that is a stinging indictment that Jesus places against these leaders. They were critical hypocrites. They sat in judgment of everyone else, and they said that they were keeping God's law, but actually the leaders did not have any of the characteristics of God's righteousness in them. So there's good reason why this comes up in the Sermon on the Mount at this point. And Jesus is talking about their attitude, the attitude of a critical hypocrite. And they thought that they had plenty to criticize other people over, but they never stopped to look at their own lives and to judge correctly in their lives about what they needed to get right. Now, there are two areas of teaching in the beginning of this chapter that I want to get into. 
We're going to get into the first area today, and then uh, we'll get to the next part in another message. Actually, it's going to be three weeks away. We have Mother's Day coming up next week, and so we'll depart from the regular study for that. Then on the 16th, we have our missionary, Dan Morris from Mexico, who's going to be with us, so we won't be speaking on that week. So we'll come back on the 23rd of May, a long time between two parts of this sermon, and we're going to get the second part of it. So today we want to get a start with the first part, and what I want to speak to you about this morning is proper judgment. Now, unsaved people may not know anything at all about the rest of this sermon, but they really do love this verse. And they pull it out every time that somebody makes a comment about what they're involved in, some sin that they're doing, and they'll always say, judge not that you be not judged. And they'll say, well, no one has the right to speak about what I do, and it doesn't matter what I do, do anything that I I can do anything I want to do, I can live any way that I want to, because no one has the right to judge me for what I do. But just to prove that they haven't read far enough and they don't know what this verse means, all you have to do is go down to verse number 6 and look at this. Jesus says, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. What is that verse about? Well, all of you little Bible scholars, you can make note here, this is a verse about judgment. And in fact, it's some pretty scathing judgment. There were some people that Jesus calls dogs, some he calls swine, and he tells us how we're to deal with them. So somehow, we have to make a judgment about which people are dogs and swine. Now, in the immediate context, Jesus is speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's telling the people, you have to judge them. You, you have to stay away from them. You have to look and see what they do, and you have to make some decisions about them, and you have to decide whether they are no-count hypocrites and whether they're telling you lies and whether they're actually people that are not even worth your time. Now, a later message, some... Um, I think it's towards the end of May, maybe the last Sunday in May around Memorial Day, we're going to talk about verse number 6. And, and it's really an, uh, an, an interesting verse, what Jesus means here, by not casting your pearls before swine and, and not giving holy things unto dogs. So right after Jesus says in verse number 1, don't judge, he comes right back and he says, you better exercise some judgment. Now, that would tell us then that there's more to this than those who would misuse the Scriptures and have us to believe that there's no way that we can judge. And so we have to check this out. Everything has to be put into its proper context in order for us to learn the truth. And then I also think that there are some Christians who like to use this verse wrongly because they want to use this Scripture in an attempt to turn off those who would call them to repentance when they're involved in sin. Now, if you remember... Uh, some time ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago, I told you that before you can understand a text, sometimes you have to understand what the text doesn't mean before you can learn what it actually does mean. And what this text does not mean is that there are no circumstances under which you can judge. There are no circumstances that permit you to judge. God expects and he even demands that we use judgment, and we use it in the proper way. So we're going to talk about that side of it today. What is proper judgment all about? Let me give you three areas that the Bible most definitely says that we are to judge. First of all, we are to judge for deportment. Now, deportment, of course, means your behavior, means the way that you act. And these are judgments that are made every day, and there's nothing that's wrong with them. 
Behavior is not always the ultimate judge, but you can tell a lot about people by the way that they act. Now, we're told in Scripture specifically what sin is, and we are to discriminate on the basis of sin. The Bible very clearly tells us the difference between right and wrong, and God gave us certain things that are determiners to tell us what kinds of people that we can have fellowship with, who we can make friends with, who we run with. And we have to make all of those decisions based upon sound judgment. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 11, Paul wrote, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So not only am I to judge unfruitful works of darkness when I see them, but the Bible says that I'm to go further. I am to reprove them. And that means that I'm to get away from them. I'm to act contrary to those works of unrighteousness. And not only that, I'm to speak out against them. And I'm not just permitted to do this, but God says that we are commanded to do this. So that means that I have to know enough of God's word and of God's righteous judgment that I know what God expects. And I take that information and I use it accordingly. But what I don't do, as I don't do as the scribes and Pharisees, I don't take what I know, that knowledge that I have of God's Word, and to use it with hatred and bitterness. But I'm to temper my judgment always with mercy and kindness. Now, how people act is an indicator. It's part of the criteria of righteous, proper judgments. And we can see this in the previous sections where Jesus is dealing with hypocrisy. And he expects us to look at that and to, and to deal with it accordingly. Know who these hypocrites are. For instance, in verse number 2 of chapter 6, he says, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. In verse number 5, he said, And when thou prayest, that shall not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verse number 16, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. All of those scriptures are injunctions for judgment. We're to watch what people do, we're to see the way that they act, and we're to make a proper judgment and then don't do what they do. That type of judgment is commanded. As a parent, you make those kinds of judgments. You don't want your kids hanging around with other kids that are bad influence on them. And uh, that's really just a part of proper parenting. Nobody with any sense would say, well, you know, the Bible says we're not to judge anybody. So those kids, I can't say judge what they're doing. I'll just let my kids go with them and they can do whatever they want to do because I'm not supposed to judge anybody. And if you did that, then you wouldn't be a very good parent because you'd be irresponsible by not keeping your children away from those bad influences. Now, do you see what I'm talking about here? I don't think it's something that we have to beat to death because you already know this. Every day these types of judgments are made. An employer makes a judgment when he hires someone. Schools do it when they evaluate uh, kids that can, they want to accept for admission. Uh, clubs do it for membership. And so we do this all the time. How you act is criteria for judgment, and the Bible reinforces that over and over again. But let's narrow it down just a little bit, and let's see how this applies directly to the church. Do we, as a church, have the right to judge? Are we to be inclusive? And so for the sake of unity, we throw out good discernment. Well, Bible discernment is exactly this. It's about making proper judgments. And the church has to make a proper judgment both inside and out. 
Now let me show you what I mean by this. Now the last two we're going to deal with today have to do with the church. What do we do on the inside? Well, we are to judge for discipline. A great example of this is Paul's teachings concerning the Lord's Supper. The first Sunday in April, our church observed the Lord's Supper. And I brought this up when I was speaking about who is allowed to come to the Lord's table. And that alone would be enough to show you that we have to judge. Is there, are there people that are restricted from coming to the Lord's table? And the Bible very clearly tells us that there is. And so we have to make some kind of judgment about those who are restricted. So let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would, and we'll take a look at this. Uh, those of you that were here on the uh, night that we took the Lord's Supper, you'll be familiar with this. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we begin reading in verse number 9. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle, that's a letter, I wrote unto you in a letter not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man is called, uh, that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person." The context of this is Jesus is speaking, or Paul rather, is speaking of a man who was guilty of having an illicit affair. Now Paul teaches that the church is to judge according to that sin, and that's why he says in verse number 11 that they weren't to eat with him. There he's speaking about the Lord's Supper, and he's warning the church that we are to practice discipline concerning those that are guilty of sin. So there are specific sins that are in that chapter. And the church is to keep a pure membership. Obviously, there is a lot of sin in the church. You and I sin every day. There's none of us that are perfect. And what we are to do is when we, when we sin against God, even sins that people don't even know about, we are to confess those sins to God. But what happens when you have somebody in the church that has got involved in some sort of sin and it becomes a bad testimony for the church. It ruins the testimony of the church. What do you do then? Well, the Bible says that we are to judge that sin. We, ta- we are to approach the sinner and we are to rebuke him and then call him to repentance. And when we do that, we have to have the right spirit about it. Because our purpose is not that we just want to kick people out of the church. I mean, that's not our desire. Our desire is that we restore people to fellowship with God. The very best thing that we could do for anybody when they get involved with sin is to tell them about that and show them that they need to follow what the Lord says and to bring them back into fellowship so they would be in the place of God's blessing. God expects us to do that because that's the way that we glorify God. So the Lord's Supper is a great indicator. It's a very precise teaching on when making judgments is proper. So that's what the church is to do within. But there's another very important area. And this is one that I, I stress over and over and over. And it's also for the protection of the church. We emphasize this. And it is a part of Jesus and the apostles' teachings. And this is that we are to judge for doctrine. There is a doctrinal standard that must be maintained. 
And we are to judge people according to their doctrine. Judging doctrine is critical judgment. And by that I mean it's very important judgment. It's absolutely necessary. Now the apostles were very acutely aware of making judgments concerning doctrine because before the church was barely 20 years old, Satan had begun to infiltrate the church and was already tearing down the doctrines of the faith. So we read in Acts chapter 15 about the very first church council that was called. And that council was called to evaluate doctrine. There were some people that were teaching that you had to be circumcised before you could be saved. And so Paul was very incensed about that. And he traveled all the way from Antioch to Jerusalem specifically for the purpose of getting with the the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem to talk to them about this wrong doctrine. And it's a doctrine that didn't die easily because 12 years later we find Paul writing to the churches of Galatia and they were faced with false teachers that had also come from Jerusalem and they were teaching this wrong doctrine. And so Paul told those churches at Galatia, if anyone comes to you and they're preaching a gospel, they're preaching a doctrine that we haven't preached, then he says that person is to be cursed. Now let me read it to you and show you how serious it was for Paul Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, or that's not even the gospel at all. But there would be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Now there twice Paul says in that passage, if anyone preaches a perverted gospel, they're to be cursed. Now very simply, the word accursed means to kick him out of the church. It means don't let the church have anything to do with him. And it carries with it the idea of turning that person over to the judgment of God. Now, the assumption would be that such a person is the enemy of God. And so, therefore, they should suffer the punishment of hell. Now, this is going to be tough. But what Paul says, in essence, is let that person go to hell for preaching a perverted gospel. That is strong language. Really strong language. Now, what we can draw from that is that Paul had no tolerance for wrong doctrine. In other places, he called people heretics. He said, you're to reject them. But how are we going to reject them unless we've judged their doctrine? You see, we have to know the word. We have to know what the correct doctrine is. And then we make that correct doctrine the measuring rod, and we judge them accordingly. On the same day that I was working on this message, uh, there was a man who came into the office, and he made some interesting comments. Um, He was here on a different matter. But I took the opportunity to talk to him about church, and I asked him where he went to church. And uh, that question was evaded. I mean, he kind of danced around that one, beat around the bush for quite a while until I finally got to the heart of the matter. And so the man told me that he was on a spiritual journey, and that he had left one church to go to another church because he was so pleased that they were tolerant of every religion and tolerant of many paths to God. They weren't exclusive, they were inclusive. And he said, well, I was just really uplifted by that camaraderie of people of all faiths. And I stood there for a moment, and I thought, boy, are you in the wrong place. 
the very last thing that we are ever going to be in this church is tolerant of all faiths. If I'm going to believe the Bible, and I do, the Bible is infallible word of God, it tells me to have no tolerance for any faith other than the faith of Jesus Christ. There aren't many paths to God. There's only one path. And the way that I know that is because Jesus said so. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can't get to the Father but by me. So the only way that you get to God is to come through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now let me go back to that Jerusalem council for just a minute and the same problem that Paul spoke to the Galatians about. He wasn't dealing with the false gods of Buddhism and he wasn't dealing with Hinduism or Confucianism or animism. None of those isms. He wasn't fooling with any of that. And, and we could dismiss that right away. They, these people didn't say they were Christians. We dismissed that and we, we dismissed that problem because they don't even pretend to worship Christ. But what Paul was dealing with was those who came in the name of Christ. These are people who said they were Christians, but they brought a gospel that was outside the pale of truth. It wasn't the gospel of Christ. Now, these people were saying that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, we would look at that and we would say, how preposterous. We're not going to add circumcision to our doctrine. Most of you probably wouldn't be too happy about that. We're not going to add circumcision to our doctrine. And so... That doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But the point is, it's only the illustration of a principle. That's what Paul was facing at the moment, and he called that another gospel. But the real principle behind this is that when you add anything to the gospel of Christ, or if you take anything away from it, then you really don't have the gospel any longer. You can't add things that are not intended to be there. You see, the Bible says that we are justified by our faith in Christ and by that alone. And so nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. Now here's where I'm going to get in trouble with a lot of church-going folks. Here's why that I won't be accepted by the Ministerial Association and churches that want to work together for social good and for the reformation of society and all the community causes that are out there. They don't want to get with me because I cannot accept what they have done to the gospel of Christ. I cannot accept it when someone comes and says that sacraments are necessary for salvation. And so if you come to me and you say, well, there are seven sacraments that you have to keep, and those include baptism and penance and confirmation and holy orders and all of that, then I would say that's a false gospel. You can't bring that in here. If you tell me that I have to pray to Mary and that Mary intercedes between me and the Father, and I'll say not in here because that's a false gospel. If you say to me that a priest has the power to forgive sin and he derives that power from the ordination of bishops and archbishops and cardinals and even the Pope himself, I say not in here because that is a false gospel. But let me go a little bit further. If you come and you say, well, health, wealth, and prosperity, that's what God wants for all Christians and that is included in the atonement of Christ, then I would say to you, not in here because that is a false gospel. If you come to me and you say, well, people have the power to heal the sick and they can raise people from the dead and Christians are to speak in the charismatic tongues, then I'll say not in here because that is a false gospel. You see, the Word of God says that we are to to judge those who would bring those kinds of heresies into the church and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And so we're not to let them gain entrance into the church. Now, let me break it down to you in the very simplest form 
And a lot of people don't want to accept this, but not everybody who says that they are a Christian is actually a Christian. You see, we have to know enough of God's Word that we can discern between those who say they are Christian and they're not Christian. And the way that we do it is we listen to the doctrine that they teach. Is it what Christ said? Is it what the apostles say? So who defines Christianity? I mean, is it me? Am I the one who defines it? I mean, who has the right to say whether a person is a Christian or not a Christian? Well, the only place that you can go is to the Bible. And that's where we find what Christ said, what the apostles said. We don't go to church tradition. We don't go to church councils. We don't go to papal edicts or anything of the sort. We don't use that to judge by. We judge by the Bible. And not only are we permitted to do so, but we are commanded to do so. And so what you won't find here is that we abandon the doctrines of the Word of God for the sake of unity. We'll never do that. We're okay with unity, but it can't be at the expense of God's holy word. Now, trust me on this. We're not through with this because if you'll read a little bit further, we'll get down to verses 15 through 23, and we find there that judgment is passed upon false Christianity, and it comes in the form of the doctrines that you believe and the fruit that you bear. So you can't take judge not that you be not judged out of the context of the entire chapter and the entire sermon. We have to exercise the proper judgment and context of the scripture bears that out. Well, it's going to be three weeks until we come back to this, but I don't want to leave you with the impression that what you have out here is some whacked out fundamentalist preacher. And you walk out the door and you say, well, you know, that guy's a hate monger. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, there's not a word that I've said today that is intended to do anything other than to help you to see the truth. I'm no more exclusive than Jesus. In verse number 6, he used terminology like dogs and swine. In verse 15, he says ravening wolves. In other places, he said vipers. And still in other places, he compared some people to open graves that are full of dead men's bones. I've yet to say any of that. So if I'm a hate monger, so much more is Jesus. See, would you, would you accuse him of that? I mean, would you look at Paul and call him and the other apostles hate mongers? You see, what I'm trying to get across here is the same message of Jesus and the apostles. Jesus said, I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. What he came to do was to pull men out of the pit of darkness and despair. And so he contrasted the righteous with the unrighteous. And he, and he made a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. He said there is a difference between being lost and without hope and on your way to hell and being saved and with hope and on your way to heaven. He made a difference between all of that. And that's all that I want to get across to you today. I want you to judge rightly. I want you to differentiate between what Jesus says and by what those who are opposed to him say. You see, there's only one way to God. There's only one way of eternal life, and that's to have your sins forgiven in Jesus Christ. And I hope that his spirit touches you today, that you judge rightly, you judge with righteous judgment, because not only does the Bible say that you are permitted to do that, it says that you are commanded to use the proper judgment. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to spend in your word today. And Lord, sometimes what we have to say is difficult for people, and, and we have the attitude that, well, the thing that we have to do to be good Christians is to be tolerant of everything. Never say anything about sin. 
Never approach people with the wrong way of living. Never talk about anybody's doctrine because at all costs we must have unity. But that is not what you've shown us in your word. We can't be tolerant for sin. No more than God is tolerant of sin. And so, Lord, we ask you to speak to our hearts and help us to use righteous judgment. Help us to look into your word and see what we are supposed to do, what you have commanded to do. And then I pray, Lord, as individuals and as a church, we would act accordingly. But then, Lord, we don't want to forget the rest of the passage that we'll deal with later. And that is we're not to make judgments on other people when we are guilty of doing the very same things. The thing that we have to do is make sure that our hearts are right before we ever approach anyone about any wrong that they're doing. Lord, help us to see this, and we pray that your Spirit might speak to your people today. I pray for anyone here today who might be lost, that the Holy Spirit would open up their heart to the truth of who Jesus is and how he came into the world to save us from our sins. And then for Christians here, Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to be discerning people. Help us to know your word so that we'll know when false teachers come and we can refute the false doctrines that they bring. Bless us now as we sing, Lord, and we pray for your mercy and your grace to be upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.